As the winter months set in, nature becomes a cruel reminder of one's mortality. As the maritime traditions go, navigating the waters of the Great Lakes was always a treacherous one, combining extreme cold, enormous size, and gale-force winds that could reach hurricane force. On November 10, 1975, nearby ships and shore radio stations lost contact with the Edmund Fitzgerald, one of the largest and most storied iron ore freighters that worked the lakes with some regularity, and the last lake freighter to go down since. After losing its radar and beginning to list, the Fitzgerald went under with all 29 crew members in the darkness of the night, leaving rescue crews and researchers alike more questions than answers as to how such a vessel could have capsized and sank with such speed. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time, dear. The only responsibility is to protect us. Hello, welcome to the show. I hope everyone is ready for the winter, and uh, none of you are going to be found passed out in snowbanks like Russian peasants. Uh, Adam and Hank are joining me today. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Pete's working. Winter's yeah. definitely here, though. Yeah, I've been winterizing various things and chopping a lot of wood and... Uh, yeah, the, win- the winter queen is coming. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was ar- around this time, uh, a little bit earlier, but around this time that the subject of today's episode took place, right at the at the onset of winter. That's right, November tenth, nineteen seventy-five. We're talking, of course, about the uh, the wreck of the titular uh, Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah, and before we bust into that, let me just thank, uh, since we've been on holiday, let me just thank a few people who have been kind enough to donate to the show via the blockchain. Going in uh, most recent to the one that was the oldest on this, the last three, uh, thank you to the wallet starting with character 17JW, the next one is 39YN, and the last one is 1KIR. If we missed anybody, apologies. And again, if anybody wants a free copy of Exit Strategy, if they have donated, please email myth20c at tutanota.com. Briefly, I'd, I'd like to add, we thank to everyone who, who donates, has donated, continue to donate to Patreon. We, we don't like to talk too much about this because it's really easy for them to shut it down. And the less said that it exists, the better. But we appreciate it very much. Thank you. So is the, the first time you ever heard of this ship... Uh, on the song, that was that was that was it for me. Yeah, that's the first time everybody hears of yeah, this. Yeah, that's true. Well, and you know, honestly, objectively, the story pretty simple, like almost extremely straightforward as far as uh, what actually happened. Kind of out of uh, 
character for this show, there's not a lot of uh, kind of, uh, you know, deep uh, hidden uh, mystery unless you want to uh, get get woke on the uh, Lake Superior sea monster question. Uh, but the context yeah, of the time, I, I think, is more more interesting than the, uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald itself. But I guess we should talk about it the is, event But itself. it's also, it's a, you got to admit, a it, I looked, a I looked everywhere tale. I could find for any kind of evidence of, of underhanded Canadian subterfuge. And unfortunately I really couldn't find anything though. That being said, Gordon Lightfoot is a Canadian. So, uh, and the captain of the ship is Canadian too. Are you sure about that? I don't think he was. Well, there were a couple captains. One was a pacer or something to that effect. And McSorley was the guy that was, uh, stewarding the ship when it went down. McSorley was the captain when it actually went down, the, yeah. he was the fourth captain of the ship, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, most of the captains before him, it was kind of because it was a really top of the line ship. It was basically kind of a cushy, like retirement, you know, on your way out of the the merchant service, you know, sort of gig. So it was uh, most of the captains did not hold it for very long because they were on their way out, and it was just it was kind of a nice job to have for the last little bit of time that they would be on uh, in the service. But be that as it may, um, it's, I don't uh, think he was Canadian, though. I, well, we 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 can we can look that up later. But I'm uh, looking it up right now. Okay. <laughs> no, he's from Toledo. Well, he lived in Toledo. I mean, I, I suppose it's possible he was mm. born in Canada. But most of the most of them were Ohio boys. I mean, Ohio, Minnesota, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, I think there was only one. There's one from Florida, one from California, two from Florida at least, one from California. Uh, the young, uh, I think one, the, the, yeah, David Weiss, the uh, cadet. Wikipedia, Wikipedia claims uh, he was born oh, uh, September 1912 in Canada. Oh, Ernest oh. Some vindication oh, from Wikipedia at least. Where, where was your source, Nick? Maybe there's a. Uh, I have an a book somewhere. by uh, a certain Michael Schumacher. Mm. Mm. Uh, mm. Covering up for something. Mighty Fitz, the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Um, yep, find a grave of Greaves, born in uh, born in Ontario, Canada. Yeah, I, I mean it's just this one, boys. We uh, we uh, we have some uh, breaking news here. Would it not be said that the uh, the American Sun uh, only does commentary and not journalism? Uh, in fact, sometimes we break news on this uh, this show, but it appears that this was a Canadian plot to uh, develop a contemporary singer songwriter folk song. So, so the uh, yeah exactly. I think you the author it, of, the author of this book. I'm uh, reading the the book jacket here. Uh, he had written biographies of Allen Ginsberg. Uh, a Jewish pedophile, Eric Clapton, uh, overrated musician, Phil Oakes, a communist folk singer, and Francis Ford Coppola, who is, of course, brilliant. Um, yeah, it should be said that most of the, I mean, it was a very seasoned crew. Obviously, uh, they all, you know, all hands were lost. Uh, most of them, at least over half of the crew, were over the age of 50. Hmm. I mean, the captain himself was 63, the first mate was 62, the second mate was 44. Um, there were just a few young guys uh, in their early 20s. Uh, very few in their 30s, interestingly enough. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let's uh, in the, reading uh, about this, I, I did... Yeah. Well, okay. I, I found some things interesting reading about this. There was some things I didn't really understand about uh, the shipping that went on. I've always been personally fascinated by the, 
the Great Lakes. Um, and I was always fascinated by the idea that you could have these shipwrecks on it. Uh, yeah. Maybe we do a, a brief. Lake uh, is a complete misnomer. Like the the Great Lakes are America's great inland sea. Yeah, but it's of course. Hold on a second. Fact, Let, let's let's redo that. I don't want to have the uh, the klaxons yeah. in the background. Yeah, well, I understand. Okay. He's trying to steal some ham, and he keeps being thwarted <laughs> and trying. To it really it. sounds like a checkout aisle. What? what? <laughs> I guess that's what you got to deal with. All right, I'm in, a, I'm in a fast food restaurant, and that's their anti-podcaster uh, uh, device. Oh, by the way, this is uh, this is the tasty content. Yeah, it's it. You can. I, I think the audience deserves to understand the what, the what I go through. Which we go through. This every week. <laughs> Produce every week. Yeah, I'm working on. I, mean, I live in a pretty remote place, and uh, I'm working on getting some kind of convoluted internet set up. But in the meantime, I'm I'm reduced to to huddling in the corner of uh, late night fast food joints. Well, we appreciate uh, your efforts, Nick. Oh uh, yeah, that's well, my pleasure. You're a good soldier. So, I did want to say some a few things about these lakes. Though. I mean, Hank, Hank says that um, they're more accurately considered a sea, and I mean, in many sense, this is true. But we remind people that this is fresh water, and yeah. uh, in fact, the Lake Superior itself is ten percent of the Earth's fresh water in, in that lake alone, and it's, it's the largest surface area of, of any lake in the world. Right. Uh, but it does not have the largest volume. The ones that have more volume would be uh, Baikal, in yeah, Siberia, Siberia, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, uh, some Uga Booga name in Africa, like yeah. Eastern Africa. Yeah, yeah. Well, both of those they, uh, I think are, are similar topologies, and that they're rift valleys, which I think is there's uh, there's a separation in the earth, and that's why they go so deep, and that's where the correct comes from. Yeah, the reason that the Lake Superior is so deep is you know because a billion years or so ago you had the the mid continent rift and North America split basically apart, and uh, then. 20, more recently in geological time, 22 million years or so, there was, uh, yeah, the molten basalt start coming up and creating a basin. And then even more recently, you would have had the glaciers a couple million years ago. The glaciers would have moved uh, moved down and carved into the basin, making deepening it and channeling it out. And then uh, it would retreat and melt, and that's where you get the lake. And it's a hugely important, I mean, it, it's a wildly under known parts of the national infrastructure of the United States. It is possible. And actually people do do this. I had a friend who did about, well, he did some portion of this uh, recreationally, but if you set out from uh, Chicago, it's possible for you to go North uh, between the upper peninsula of Michigan and Michigan into Lake Huron, past Detroit, up through the Erie Canal, into the St. Lawrence Waterway, round about Nova Scotia, work your way all the way down the east coast to Miami, to New Orleans, up the Mississippi, <laughs> and back to Chicago. Right. Without ever touching dry land. Now, you have to go and through locks, which is You do. Something. The locks and dams are extensive. That's how, uh, you know, the, the Great Lakes, they were originally, of course, there's uh, kind of, you know, streams and watersheds that unite them. But if you're going to make them usable for the, the truly vast amount of shipping that happens from America's industrial Midwest and Rust Belt, 
and get those goods to market over water, which was the goal of the whole endeavor, you need to do a huge amount of improvement. So there's uh, several hundred miles of canals linking Chicago to the Mississippi. That's the traditional kind of uh, the Mississippi to Great Lakes um, uh, shipping channels um, that kind of uh, seal the loop. That's the uh, That was the longest part of this. But you also have um, these huge uh, locks and dams where it's kind of like there's a lot of museums um, that have this as kind of a fixture, but you can imagine like, you know, you have three compartments and you can raise the water level uh, in the uh, middle one or lower it um, to equilibrate with the ones on either side without there being like rapids between them. It's like an airlock, but you know, for water and you can use this to send these ships full of uh, either manufactured goods or, in the case of Ian Fitzgerald, uh, this uh, bulk uh, taconite uh, ore or the uh, the taconite prill after it's processed. It's 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 iron ore, iron ore. That's just yeah. the, I guess the form of it. Yeah. Well, we got a lot to say about taconite, but we can save that for a little well, bit later. Sure. Yeah, I wanted to say something about iron ore. I, I didn't really understand this until I was reading about this, which is that uh, around the turn of the century, the uh, mines around Lake Superior, which I should add has a shoreline of uh, uh, 1,826 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so around the shoreline of, of Lake Superior, you had uh, the mines that were producing iron uh, iron ore, uh, particularly in, uh, in Minnesota, uh, they produced uh, three quarters of the U.S. iron ore, yeah. and this is what was fueling the Rust Belt. Uh, and it's also maybe said that, uh, to some extent, I mean, I'm not going to say this is responsible for this particular shipwreck, but it, it might, you know, oftentimes the commercial demands that were being placed on these ships and steadily increasing commercial demands uh, could be said to have contributed to the loss of, of ships in the sense that risks were taken that otherwise probably would not be taken. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the safety record of these ships is, I mean, it depends on how you sort of uh, quantify it, but it was generally fairly good. I think the previous wreck was like in the 60s, and there hasn't been one since that I know of in the Great Lakes, at least at this magnitude. At the, uh, at the early century, there were a couple of very savage storms um, that, that did kill. Yeah, and and you'd really have to go through a full accounting of all the different parts of the lakes. But in the uh, the Whitefish Bay area, which is connecting Lake Superior to the Sioux Locks, which then dump into Lake Michigan, uh, that area has 240 wrecks in uh, up until the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was the last one actually. So they did impose some changes in the regulations in an attempt to make the shipping more safe to counteract some of the, the potential causes or risks that you're uh, intimating. It, it was, it should be said, though, it was a top-of-the-line ship. I mean, it was built in the 50s. 57, yeah, 58. Uh, oh, 50, yeah, it was, uh, it was the most expensive ship up until that point as far as freight ship ever built. It was around uh, $8.4 million. Uh, it was also absolutely gigantic it was you know 729 feet long which is you know at least two football fields right yeah thereabouts yeah i mean 100 yards is 300 feet so yeah two more two yeah a little bit more and these 
these ships because I, uh, some of these are designed purely for uh, kind of intra lake travel. Some of them, because the locks and the dams uh, constrain the maximum size of the ship, you often have um, ships referred to as like this is a Panamax ship, this is a Suez Max. A Malacca Max, or a uh, I forget what the actual term is. I guess Erie Max, probably. I think that's the the shortest uh, canal, but it forces them to have kind of a, a particular shape that's not ideal for then transiting. If you are going to do that whole uh, grand tour uh, that uh, we referred to, um, if you're uh, if you're going to do just like bulk transshipment, you probably bring it to somewhere like. Quebec City, where they loaded onto a really huge container ship, if it's going to you know Europe or something. But these ships are uh, because they're actually American flagged. Uh, there's a piece of American legislation, the Jones Act, mm-hmm. that if you're taking a piece of cargo between two U.S. ports, uh, and the Puerto Ricans are very butthurt that Puerto Rico is considered a U.S. port. Uh, the Hawaiians and Alaskans to some extent as well, mm-hmm. it has to travel on a U.S. flagged ship, which means that it needs to be crewed by uh, a certain complement of U.S. merchant marine officers. It has to follow U.S. Uh, uh, regulations as far as how long you can work your crews and uh, safety regulations, required equipment, and all of that. So... As a result, those uh, those crews they're fairly good at what they do, and they're there because they want to be doing it, not because uh, you know you're you're some uh, Filipino and you got sold into borderline uh, slavery and some Taiwanese uh, junker or whatever uh, to uh, to work off your debt. Yeah, yeah, the Jones Act is kind of a big thing uh, in just the the sort of ports that go between Hawaii, especially, and uh, the continental U.S., and then, of course, Alaska. And I, it never occurred to me that it applied to the Great Great Lakes as well, since that's not the ocean, per se. But it does make sense that those guys fall into that jurisdiction of Canada being the, right there. The, there was a really good book written about something similar to that uh, by the very mysterious writer uh, B. Traven, who wrote Treasure of Sierra Madre. Uh, the book's called The Death Ship, and it's set in the interwar period. And uh, this guy like basically misses the the jump back on his ship and loses his passport, and he's caught in this, in this kind of uh, this hell this hell world, and ends up on this this doomed type of ship. And as I, I understand it, the main the main business of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the main the primary trip that it took was to 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 pardon me to Toledo. Right. Yeah, it, uh, which is why it had a nickname of the Toledo Express. Yeah, it, the the job was basically bringing the the feedstock for the steel mills, and so there are, there, there are tons of uh, steel mills along Great Lakes uh, because of uh, the great iron ore deposits up in the Lake Superior region, as you guys were mentioning. Uh, and so, the, as Nick was saying, this is the the Rust Belt. And what I wanted to say real quick was that. Even the song, uh, the, the Edna Fitzgerald uh, by Gordon Lightfoot, it really just reminds me. Because growing up, you know, uh, I remember guys like this because you know I, I could see that generation sort of still trying to cling on to the middle class life. But the working class was actually a thing. 
Uh, manufacturing employment actually peaked in the United States around 1979, which was much later than I actually originally thought it, w- it would have because of all the sort of imports from overseas. But ever since the 80s took hold and the financialization of the economy, this type of stuff just fell by the wayside. And all the steel mill, I mean, how many people, you know, work in a steel mill? I mean, let, let's be real. And so even the ship itself was showing its age, literally, with all the different crew members not being very young. And so it, it seems even then people were transitioning out of this type of work. But it was cool. And, and the song itself was very, you know, just old kind of fisherman style uh very so she, sea shanty. It was it was very much prose heavy, but in a melodic way that actually you could sort of imagine yourself hearing in some kind of like Scottish pub in the 17th century about old man, uh, winter and, and ocean and stuff like that. And Poseidon, you know, rising up to take your ship or your, your fishing vessel in particular or, the, or, or a merchant ship for that matter. This is what this was. Uh, and, you know, today it's like I wonder if people would even relate to it at all. But I, I, I can very much see how people who led a, a life where they're actually braving the elements, having to actually risk their life a little bit. I mean, there's probably not too many people left. Maybe if you're a, a crab fisherman or something up in Alaska, you can relate to this. But I think most people uh, today couldn't really grok it, you know, intellectually or, or relate to it emotionally. Uh but, you know, th- there is something to the song, and it's a great song, and I-, I think there is a historical aspect to it as well, because it-, it just speaks to an era where a singer-songwriter could actually come up with a song that was literally documenting some guy's day-to-day, and it was, like I said, it, just, it was a very, like, this happened, this happened, this happened. There wasn't a lot of metaphor, even though it was, it was well-written. And- and I you don't need men, metaphor. There's... You like if you've ever been on a ship in any body of water when there has been a storm, it becomes immensely clear to you yeah. that you are a tiny insignificant being living at the sufferance of forces that are completely beyond your control it's very easy in those circumstances to see why you'd start praying to see deities or whatever deities you had handy. I, I had a brush with the ocean once and it well, scared the, the hell out of me. The line, yeah. What's the line in the, uh, in the song that's like, uh, does, does anyone, anyone know, know where, where the love of gods go when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is the best line in the song by far. I, I think so too. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. I think that there's something very dignified in general about, uh, as far as emotions go, you know, to the the sort of the melancholy and the sadness at the at, at the shipwreck and ships lost at sea, or in this case, giant lakes. I think that uh, it, it's one of the few things that's befitting a man is to to feel feel this melancholy. We're just humbled, like Hank was saying. Uh, it, it's very humbling. I, as I was mentioning briefly before, uh, I, I had a brief encounter with this, and uh, it really makes you sort of take stock of your life because um, there's just not much you can do when you're out on that water. You know, people are not really built for that environment. Keep that in mind, too. Uh, and I remember telling myself when I got back to shore finally, after somebody actually uh, rescued me, um, and I was so grateful to this guy. I sent him a, uh, <laughs> a, a, a letter and it was some cash in it in the mail. Uh, but, um, 
I, I told myself, you know, I I don't think I, I should go out there again. I mean, if I have to, I have to, but I was not meant for that place. And so when you go out there, you really are, are chancing it. That's how I felt. Yeah, I don't I don't go swimming anymore after the incident. So, so do, do we do we want to talk about the uh the day to day of of the Edmund Fitzgerald or the 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 specs of the ship or what direction do we want to well, go in here? It's it's a simple story. I mean, I think that's kind of why it, it fills you with this. It's a very clear story. Like they're they're going from uh uh what is it out of uh out of Duluth um, to a uh, a uh, steel mill well, in Michigan. Well, they were actually going uh, from Superior, Wisconsin, which is close to Duluth, but maybe yeah, Hank, just you a, can it's clarify. Just across the bay. So why yeah, would they be there? Because the Duluth is famous for having these giant iron ore docks, right? And so, what is what is in Superior? Like, do they got something similar? Well, I don't know what the particular. There are some piers. I'm just looking at Google Maps now. To be honest, there yeah, are some piers. That are in uh, Superior. If you go up the uh, coastline to two harbors, that's where you have the really big offloading, uh, I guess, onloading um, uh, bulk uh, bulk piers. Um, and there's also some piers that I believe are more oriented towards uh, cargo in Duluth. Now, in the 70s, it's possible that they had uh, more of that infrastructure in uh, Superior proper. Right. Uh, but it, it's not surprising. Like these are all just kind of termination points for these taconite mines in uh, northern Minnesota uh, via rail. To, to be clear, uh, those are coming down by railroad cars. So we talked earlier about how there's the big uh, water connection from Chicago to the Mississippi and so on. But if you're talking about uh, the port of Duluth or Superior or Thunder Bay. You're mostly talking about there's rail that brings it to there. And then you have this beautiful uh, piece of infrastructure, uh, you know, the, uh, the jewel of the Midwest, uh, Detroit, uh, where you have easy access to the coal being uh, uh, shipped by rail up from uh, West Virginia and uh, parts of Ohio. And you have the iron ore being shipped uh, from Minnesota. It all gets... Uh, combined very cheaply, and you have that great industrial uh, powerhouse putting out your uh, your steel in all grades of, and varieties, uh, or maybe not, uh, not so much anymore, but still a little bit. Uh, so, so I think uh, Nick, you had you had some thoughts on taconite. I did have some thoughts on taconite. You started to explain this to me before we started the show. And what I said to you is that, you know, I can be interested in this only one time. So I, oh. I, I was I was intrigued that you had some interest in this, by the way. So I'm I have enough to interest to, to be to interested in it once. Oh. And so my, okay, there's, I, I, what are the two compounds I, I mentioned? There, the 30% of taconite is constituted of the principles of iron. Is this correct? It's usually like iron oxide yeah. is rust, and that's what's in dirt usually, right? It's magnetite. Yeah, magnetite and he he hematite yeah. or something. What is the other? Yeah, magnetite and uh, hematite. I think it's hematite. mostly uh, mostly magnetite, which is yeah, it is it is an iron oxide. It's not necessarily uh, rust. Uh, it's a stable oxide. It's uh, not the red flaky stuff. Okay. Um, 
it's uh I'm I'm not a I'm not a chemist, but you can uh there's different uh uh, chemical procedures that you can use to uh, stabilize your uh, rust by turning it into magnetite. Okay. But it exists as a mineral. So, like, when, when people talk about mining, uh, people think sometimes that, uh, like, you, you dig a hole and at the bottom is just, you know, a bunch of nuggets, like, fire nuggets <laughs> yeah. or, you know, diamond nuggets or uh like aluminum nuggets no there, there's no nuggets there's yeah, some dirt. very specific <laughs> yeah. uh minerals are you like saying gold. minecraft lied to me hank i mean under some conditions i've never actually played minecraft i would hope not <laughs> pretty much everything is like there's a rock that has a lot of this particular kind of stuff in it like bauxite has a lot of aluminum in it, but it's ore, it's a rock. And you have to do some sort of refinement to that rock in order to uh, make it usable. And then uh, you do further uh, refining to actually get whatever uh, particular uh, element or compound out of it. So taconite, it's a rock. And then you can't just like take that and it, it gets kind of... Uh, iffy as far as shipping that directly so they usually process it on site or slightly on site where you basically smash it up you use a magnet to pull the constituents out of it that are uh, more iron rich and you throw some clay or some limestone or whatever you have and you make these little pellets that are kind of these like red pellets that are really easy to ship and you put that on your uh, cargo uh, containers because that's really easy to put on conveyor belts without a lot of spillage. And you must put that on very carefully is one thing that I learned because the loading process is one of the most dangerous things in this process because if you can, um, I forget the term, but what happens is if the if the weight causes the boat to basically banana. To, to lit? Oh, you know? okay. Right. Yeah, they, the sag, they put too like much, the, yeah. well, no, too much in the center at once. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, this will cause serious problems. Uh, so things have to be loaded in a very specific order, and it has to be to balance the weight, etc. It has to be done uh, very exact. Yep. Yeah, that's why if you look at these big piers, you're like, why do they have all these chutes that are so close together? It's not like they're loading multiple ships. It's because they have to load them in a particular layout in order to prevent the ship from sinking. Like these things are, these ships are designed to be really close to the dimensions of the shipping channels. So they tend to have very particular uh, drafts. That's like how far down below the waterline they go uh, once they're loaded. Um, they, they look like giant barges and a lot of the, uh, of these vessels are just like big barges depending on where they're designed to ship stuff. So, yeah, loading is uh, loading is important, and that means that that dictates the design of your infrastructure, and that dictates the design of your ships, and it's turtles all the way down. If you want to see a really yeah, movie, uh, I uh, I endorse for your terrible movie watching pleasure, uh, North Country, uh, starring uh, Charlie's Theron. Uh, which is about uh, a poor uh, woman who wants nothing more than to be a taconite miner, uh, but is uh, unfair. <laughs> what? Kidding me. Gender. I'm not joking. 
Charlie's there and uh, wants to mind taconite, but uh, she's unfairly oppressed because of her uh, her gender and the harassment from the iron ore miners. Oh Hank, God. did you just watch this movie because it had taconite in it? I. <laughs> I'm not good. So. There's very few minerals, very few minerals that can capture a man's heart. If you're of certain ethnic persuasions, it might be a, a gold or a silver or a diamond uh, or some sort of a berg, uh, perhaps a ruby or a stein or, you know, something of that nature. <laughs> taconite. Taconite is my bag. It's like, you know, it's, it's so close to being just, you know, a pure thing of steel but it's not, and it takes a lot of human effort to make that happen. It's like somewhat labor. It, it takes it takes hearts of iron, doesn't it, Hank? It does, and it doesn't have the same uh, the same cachet as the coal mining because you know you don't have the uh, the cinematic uh, portrayals of people coated in the uh, the coal dust or the black lung or whatever. It's uh, so. Would you say that as as far as minerals go, taconite is the purest expression of the will to power? You know, I would, uh, I would say that uh, if you're going to forge an empire, you're you're definitely going to want some taconite at the the bottom of it. Well, wasn't uh, forgot his real name, but Stalin's pseudonym was based on the concept that he wanted steel in his name. That means a yep. man of steel. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. Right. That's right. And if you look at the Soviet Union, I mean, that's what they basically became. It was a heavy industry focused uh, society whereby they could churn out. Miles upon miles of tank columns in Magnitogorsk. Have we done the Magnitogorsk show? Yes. Yeah, we, we got to okay. do that at some point. How, how much? You know, this the ship though uh, was likely cursed. Did you know this? I, I was I, reading uh, that and thinking that myself. Yeah, they had. Okay, some bad so luck. when it was first christened, you know the tradition of of cracking a champagne bottle. Yeah, you got to do it in one stroke, or it's bad luck. Yeah. It, it 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 exactly exactly that. It did not break on the first mm. one. And then when um, when they did the first launch into the water, it went in at this sort of strange angle, and it caused a huge wave uh, and splashing everybody who was there to watch. And furthermore, there was one man uh, in his in his mid fifties or so who came to watch the, uh, the watch the ship be put into water, who just died on the spot. He had a heart attack. That's right. Yeah, he was so upset. Mm. You know, it's funny. Like when when something happens to you, and you start recounting the sort of uh, intricacies of whatever it is you're doing or wherever it is you are and how there were maybe potentially bad omens. If you're a believer in that sort of thing, you can't help but wonder sometimes if there were signs. Well, the mind looks to construct meaning and order out of the world. And when something very bad happens, it forces you to consider the significance of the most mundane things. As it should. I mean, if you're a thoughtful person, you should actually take stock in what just happened so you don't do it again. But I uh, I had a moment in my life where there were these two gas stations that were right across the street from one another. And I always went to one of the gas stations, not the other. must choose. Yes. Okay. So one day I went to the other gas station just for no real reason. I just decided to go there. And it set in motion the series of events that was uh, pretty bad. So I won't say more than that. But that, yeah, <laughs> that, we've all we've all had that happen. <laughs> God damn it! I should have taken the left turn. You know, it's like yeah, the, exactly, the exactly. Stuff, you know, yeah, yeah. I there's. I mean, it's interesting because that's the thing about it. I mean, you're talking about you know the the speck of uh, 
of man-made material floating in the vast expanse of the of the limitless ocean. You know, it. I think that as far as I, I mean, I've never been to sea in any meaningful sense, but as far as I know of the culture around, uh, the, you know, the culture of sailors and and merchant marines, et cetera, uh, it, it is. Is a, and you see this in Moby Dick too. This kind of stuff's discussed. Where it's there, it is a kind of a there's a very big superstitious aspect to it all because so much of it is not in your hands uh, that you try to take control of your fate in the ways that you know is possible, even if it seems absurd, you know, or uh, or uh, fanciful or what have you. It's it's it makes sense because you're you're at the mercy of things beyond beyond your control, beyond the control of man. Oh, one, one quick anecdote about, I guess it's a magnetite. Uh, I, I didn't quite, you know, have my chemistry set with me when I was doing this, but I was curious uh, when I went outside one day, I wanted to see if uh, one of these little magnets I had uh, just for working on my car, basically seeing if the things got Bondo under the paint job. Uh, that's an old trick uh, if you're buying a used car uh, to see if there's been work done on it. But uh, I put it in the dirt and it picked up uh, what I thought was basically just iron oxide rust, as I called it. But uh, it, it didn't it didn't look reddish, you know, so it, it could have been of this form. And what I'm guessing is that in this uh, iron ore range in the sort of Minnesota Canadian Shield area, kind of to the western half of Lake Superior, and also a little bit in Wisconsin. I'm just guessing that there's just a lot of this stuff, and you, it's it's of a higher concentration. But I'm in a by no means a sort of quote unquote iron rich area. It's just a normal area, and I would assume though that if you go to the Iron Range, you would just have a very high concentration of this stuff. And uh, this this reminds me when I was actually looking into this completely separately from this show topic i was just actually interested in the iron ore range for some reason i was researching like why is all that stuff there and i think there's some theories as to why there's such a a dense accumulation i think it has to do with the fact that those great lakes were you know home to a lot of aquatic wildlife uh and i think maybe some of the the ancient uh algaes or whatever it is the eukaryotes i can't quite pronounce that right but basically these these very ancient organisms that are living in the water uh they they probably concentrated iron in their bodies when they died and i think that's i think one of the theories why that that stuff exists like that are you you talking about the elder ones with the starfish shaped heads i'm talking about the really tiny ones so i'm guessing i heard it was a uh, artillery exchange between rival factions of thals and melon heads and we've just been (laughs) the uh the husks of uh of those shells and uh rocket fuselages yeah no who knows who knows anymore but um it, 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 it is interesting. Like, why is all this stuff here? I mean, the theory about oil is very similar. It has to do with aquatic life usually dying in a, in a concentration over millions of years. And that's why you see a lot of oil deposits in ancient seabeds. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting research question. It's all the, the blood and the bones of the giants who were slain to make the world. Right, but where did the iron for them come from? In or, uh, Wisconsin, I, I believe uh, there's a, the uh, one of the very uh, interesting confirmed uh, giant uh, exhumations um, happened in Wisconsin, I believe, around the uh, 1920s. Are you talking about the mounds? 
No, I'm talking about the, uh, there was like a uh, uh, giant uh, skeletons that were unearthed by this uh, this farmer in Wisconsin around the turn of the century. Huh. This is, uh, if you're if you're into cryptids, um, this will be of no, uh, no new revelation to you. Right. But uh, if you just check out, uh, you know, Wisconsin giant skeletons, uh, you'll, uh, you'll find the straight dope on there. But uh, I think we're starting to make some more connections here besides the, uh, the perfidious Canadians. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you're dealing with uh, ill omens, curses. I mean, the, that is the mystery of the ship, is no one quite knows why exactly it sank. And furthermore, no one knows exactly how it sank either. The popular theories, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, one is that it was it split in half altogether. The other was it drove the bow was driven down uh, just immediately because it did it hit the it hit the floor. Well, it it did split. I mean, there were expeditions. Yeah, that but were, it, it it's not. Yeah, it, split. It, it split to the point where the rudder of the stern was pointed upwards and yeah. it had been contorted. But it, what's not clear is if it had split prior to sinking. That, that could have been just from buoyancy, like the air got trapped in the pocket in the back, and then it just kind of like went down, like kind of a artillery shell or something. But um, it, it was the the bow was something like five hundred and thirty some feet deep. Right. Right. Which is incredibly deep. I mean, that's that makes uh, any well, long-term just dive the expedition. Of the lake. Yes, yeah. but that makes it very hard to get to. Well, yeah. There's a uh, if you go to uh, the uh, Duluth Maritime Museum, uh, there's a, a nice little subsection on that. And is that uh, where they put just, the bell? Uh, I would assume so. Um, I don't there's, know specifically, but there's there was a, a big controversy over the bell. Uh, there was a lawsuit and everything. As some believe that the bell should stay there. Uh, yeah, a, it's usually not really good luck to uh, yeah disturb exactly. uh, shipwrecks, especially Pre- if you're the. Uh, Pre- I think the Coast Guard runs that museum. Yeah, if you're involved in maritime operations of any kind yourself, it will bring you know bad bad luck on, upon you if you if you do anything like that. But the families uh, wanted it as a memorial site well one of the the concepts that was interesting introduced by the song was that uh lake superior never gives up her dead and apparently this is because of the cold temperatures not really allowing any of the bacteria that would normally grow or gestate in a dead body to form gases that would cause a body to float in salt water where you do have more buoyancy and where it's warmer typically but because of the the cold temperature not doing that uh, in the first place, it just and and no salt making uh, whatever object in there more buoyant. Uh, apparently, the bodies are still down there somewhere. And when they huh. sent the expeditions, uh, apparently they didn't find anybody. So it's kind of spooky, you know. That that's very okay, well. Spooky. A body did a body did turn up, and that was what led to further expeditions being forbidden. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. And Jacques Cousteau's, uh, uh, forget what, the Calypso, I think it was called. They, they went down his, there. His son, uh, I think, went down. Yeah, I forget his name, but uh, I believe it, it was his son who did that in the 80s. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's really harsh. Like, I was reading about some of these early storms. They had the worst storms recorded were happened at the in the early 20th century. And there was one incident where a ship uh, was ran aground. And it was, you know, nearby the port. Uh, but it was ran aground in such a way on the rocks and due to the storm that no one could get to it in, at the night. So what people had done, they had like set up all these bonfires outside and were re- reading prayers and things of this sort. 
uh, knowing full well that most of the men will probably be, have frozen to death by the morning. Uh, that is exactly what happened. The only survivors were the ones who were, I believe, below deck and had access to the captain's room where they chopped up his bathroom and burned it in the bathtub and for warmth. And those were the only survivors. So basically all these people watched everyone die because the ship was inaccessible to the Coast Guard. Yeah, it's just brutal stuff. I mean, and this was uh, in November and I, I, I got to imagine it, it was just, uh, even if it wasn't snowing, even though it did start snowing on that trip, uh, even when it was clear, uh, the amount of visibility must have been very low because the, the days were quite short by then. And given the northern latitude, um, you're in darkness most of the time. And these things ran 24 hours a day. And so just a lonely place to be out in the middle of nowhere like that. And they did have a, a well, and they were ship. running blind too, right? There was a ship, the Arthur M Anderson that was actually helping it because yes. the radars went out. And so they couldn't see yeah, anything literally like no, no light, no radar, nothing. And I guess they didn't have sonar on those things. They should have though, because one of the theories about why it went down was, uh, there was a I think shallow a ground mechanical engineer, at one of the universities up there that, was looking at the wreckage and thinking about it. And basically he, he speculated or hypothesized that they had hit a shoal, which is basically a, a submerged mountain that is, you know, I don't know if it was because of the waves that maybe they, they hit it when they normally wouldn't have hit it. Uh, but it scraped the side in his uh, theory. And then once the buckling of the waves and the constant, metal stress over time and th this stuff happens i mean metal is, is is like anything else it will give after you you work on it long enough uh his theory was that after it hit a shoal and then just going through the waves it actually split apart just without even uh any real uh mega incident at that moment it was just the repetitive stress over time uh that's one of the theories other theories was that they didn't seal the hatches well enough but there, there's people still f trying to figure it out yeah, they were very, very experienced crew, though. I mean, that's the thing. It's as far as the hatches go, and obviously, no one likes to hear that you know they they screwed up or something. But right, the uh, the other possibility with taking on water on board to have uh, like green water on board a ship uh, that size that would have meant thirty to thirty five foot waves or so. You know. Yeah, I mean that's, that's what that's what just, the other ship was saying they, they were hitting. That's just huge. It's huge. Uh, I, yeah. I should it's add three-story buildings or more. Yeah. Um, just the mass of that. I mean, water is oh. incredibly heavy. Right. Like people, people don't. That's really, why. That's why ships float because <laughs> they. Yeah. You know, they're like it, it, it's yeah. this this huge shell that's made, made of steel, steel <laughs> and packed with iron ore. I know. It's wild. And it's just yeah. bobbing up top. Like it's it's fine. Uh, it's, and meanwhile, a three-story building that has, you know, the, the equivalent, uh, density, you know, far greater than that ship just slamming into the side. It's very, again, if you've never been on the water in a storm, then it's, uh, you know, it's, it's probably like, if you're going to talk about just a magnitude of thing happening to you. It's uh, the most that most people will experience. I should add, too, that another thing about November and the turn of fall to winter is in the Midwest, you get the nor'easter. 
and the you know this is a it's a counterclockwise low pressure system that brings in the, the from the northeast some very harsh winds and many many ships that were lost uh, were lost exactly in a nor'easter but there wasn't sort of any you know definable uh screw up i guess that anyone can point to there were hypotheses about things that they might have been able to do better or things that could have mitigated it but fundamentally i mean a lot of the hypotheses are just like yeah there is a huge wave and it crashed into the side sunk the ship game over couldn't have been prevented couldn't have been mitigated but uh nonetheless um there was a uh, reaction uh, to uh, to the loss of this ship. Um, there were great uh, improvements uh, to uh, the uh, the sort of uh, shipping regulations that all uh, all vessels in that area are uh, supposed to follow. Um, things like uh, survival suits, which I you know I don't think that any survival suit uh, has ever really contributed to the survival of anyone because mostly by the time it's time to put on the suit, it's a little bit too late. And if you're actually trying to stop the ship from sinking, you actually want maximum mobility so that you can run around patching holes in the side of your ship. Uh, Things like, uh, you know, kind of low jack for uh, ships. Um, now that we have GPS and satellite communications, a lot of these are a lot easier. Um, but all of these things were sort of just, uh, you know, tightening down the bolts, uh, so to speak. And a lot of it was kind of technological advancements um, that you can be in communication even if you're in the middle of nowhere now. Uh, not necessarily any... Uh, anything like, you know, after the Titanic, it's like, oh, gee, maybe it's a good idea if you have enough lifeboats for everyone. There is the Titanic. There is an angle on the Titanic. I don't want to do this one here. The, the insurance angle. Yeah. 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 I, I can't. It, well, it is funny that the uh, Edward Fitzgerald was owned by an insurance company. Yeah. It was a, a mutual geez, Northwestern Mutual Life. They're, they're pretty big. Mutual Life, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at yeah, the time, they commissioned is, for the ship to be built. Apparently. This is super inside baseball, but at the time, insurance was so heavily regulated as far as what they could invest in, and interest rates were um, spiking upwards. This was this was basically the era of the conglomerate, where you had companies just buying random stuff just for cash flow because the only way that they could get decent uh, financing was if they had, uh, if they were basically able to finance it internally. So you had weird stuff, like kind of like you see in Japan, actually, where uh, you have these these giant concerns buying. It's like, hey, let's, uh, let's buy the ship. Every time it goes to port, we get a payout. And, uh, you know, we can use that to pay out claims, kind of amortize some of our float. It's kind of a weird uh, economic situation that's like, but bro, you do life insurance. What do you know about, uh, what do you know about Taconite? Yeah, the, the 70s were, were the era of the conglomerates, as, as you're saying. And I, I never really understood why, because I guess uh, when I was growing up or reading business magazines, it was always about 
trying to be uh, the specialist, you know, the the elite of your industry, yeah. well, number one great. or the number two, as uh, Jack Welsh's philosophy at, when he was at GE, which was effectively a conglomerate. He was imposing sort of the opposite school of thought, yeah. whereby if but you're that was the reaction. Once you could get that? external financing, mm-hmm. like a lot of the you know that before the '80s, Wall Street was a relatively small part of the U.S. economy. Uh, after the regulations were loosened and they discovered how to make some of these structures, like you know, famously junk bonds, you could suddenly get financing for uh, stuff that previously you would have just had to have had cash flow in order to develop. So if you are in an environment where you don't have a lot of ability to finance things, then you actually want to own a lot of stuff because you can have a fairly uh, cheap internal cost of capital. This is a uh, kind of like what Berkshire Hathaway does. Um, they tend to invest in businesses that are very capital intensive, have high uh, cash flow output um, so that they can, uh, use well they have enough cash flow that they can afford to finance those capital intensive industries and the free cash flow gives them the ability to on a dime make huge amounts of money available if they come across some golden opportunity like say there's a global financial crisis and bank of america or whoever it was comes crawling hat in hand and uh, uncle warren bends him over and demands like well, he's, he's, he's done that twice, uh, to, my, to my knowledge. He invested in Solomon Brothers in the 80s, and then he also bailed out Goldman Sachs in the 08, 09 crisis. Um, yeah, don't, don't let the whole Uncle Warren uh, mythology fool you. The dude is a shark, and uh, if, he, uh, if he senses that he's got your uh, fingers uh, caught in a vice, he's, uh, he's going to tickle you a little bit, watch you squirm, and uh, see what he <laughs> Yeah, that's why that's why he does that ice cream thing, isn't it? Dairy Queen. <laughs> no, no, like PR guys, like the whole, the yeah. whole Dilly bars and cherry coke thing. And oh yeah, I I own the same house that I grew up in in Omaha. Uh, also, you know, my mansion in Malibu, but I still own this piece of real estate. Isn't that homely? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, Hank, actually a little bit more about this finance stuff because I think you you have a mind for it. Um, why why doesn't every business just do this then? Like, try to get as much cash flow and then use that to. I mean, are are they more prone to go to debt finance? Like, what? Why why not every business pursuing this? It seems like well, because at, at the time you didn't have uh, sophisticated. So, like, I I'm just some guy, and if I really wanted to, like, if I maxed out every single credit line that I theoretically have access to, like, including the random shit, like PayPal credit that, like, I didn't even realize I signed up for until I looked at my credit report, like, I could get 100000 bucks, and I could use that for whatever. Right. And the interest rate isn't even that, like, I mean, it's you know, 15% or whatever, probably okay, so you're saying this didn't exist back then. You couldn't, but you this, couldn't borrow yeah, as much. Exists. Like you, you like okay. if you ran, um, uh, I don't know what's a sort of mid range. You, you run a, a machine shop 
Well, that's pretty um, and small you, scale. <laughs> I mean, but you know, okay, let's just go with you for an example. Go ahead. You you run a small machine shop. You need to like get a new machine. All right. Like you you can't like interest rates were very high at the time, so it was difficult uh, to borrow efficiently. You know the thing is going to pay for itself if you can just buy the damn thing. So you had all these structures. This is the same uh, uh, time period where you had uh, airlines um, offering things like uh, uh, like a golden ticket, lifetime unlimited travel for one very large uh, upfront payment. So essentially, like you as the buyer are fronting them the money because interest rates were so high that they figured they could get uh, they could deploy that um, more reasonably internally to buy new airplanes and maintenance and stuff like that and it was easier to you know give a discount to some guy so that he would give you some cash flow than it was to go to wall street which at the time again was you know fairly nascent uh and try to structure some financial product to get that amount of capital available to you hmm. like this is this is like pre 401ks so the stock market isn't as saturated with money uh you didn't have the um you know these junk bond products where people are willing to invest in kind of uh sketchier uh more marginal uh ventures things were more highly regulated so insurance companies and uh, pension funds things like that weren't actually able to offer uh, financing for some of these more uh, probabilistic, let's say, ventures. So the reason that conglomerates existed was because they have capital sources and they have capital sinks. And it makes sense to put those two together because the financial sector that usually, you know, they, they describe their job as allocating capital, they just weren't at that time big enough or good enough or sophisticated enough to actually connect those dots. But if you're, uh, you know, General Motors or I guess General Electric is a better example, you can be like, oh yeah, like let's buy this television studio. Mm -hmm. It costs nothing to run. It'll be a big upfront hit, but we get advertising money each month and we use that to uh, finance our purchases of steel for our cars which we then lease to our dealerships like you can set up a lot of these structures internally at very low friction um, because your internal transaction costs are fairly low and your external transaction costs are super high because wall street you know, wasn't able to do stuff like that at the time but now it's like if you need capital yeah. you can get capital okay it might cost a lot but you know, so and then you can follow up question: deal. Why does Warren Buffett still not borrow a lot? He just uses cash flow because he has a underlying hypothesis that, like, I mean, there's there's things like you know, lines of credit are useless when you most need them. Like, if you have cash right. equivalents on hand, that's a lot better than. Like at the scale that he's operating, there's literally nobody that can supply credit to him, hmm. except for the United States federal government. Like if he wants to sink sixty billion dollars into buying something, there's like almost no bank. I think probably just no bank. Period that could underwrite that. 
but he can literally write a check. Like he sells his treasury bonds or just exchanges them directly. And the next day he owns whatever. And there seems to be an underlying hypothesis that just that availability and density of capital is itself uh, kind of disproportionately valuable. Like he can, he can do deals that other people can't um, or now, you know, kind of his, uh, his subordinates or his uh, hairs or whatever. Um, but that's sort of his uh, means of operation. Like a lot of the businesses that he owns, they just pump out cash. They do require capital investment, but he can, uh, if he has a better use for that cash, it's very easy to divert that and just uh, kind of amortize that capital depreciation until your uh, your assets uh, that you just bought pay off. Hmm. I hope everybody's super enthralled with this. <laughs> uh, especially that a lot of people start sending me Twitter messages about usury. There's absolutely nothing more than uh, than uh, people uh, telling me usury is a sin. That's uh, that's an extremely productive line of uh, discussion usually. But you do have uh, a little uh, writing project in the works on this topic, don't you? Yeah, well, I, I've tweeted about this a little bit. Um, I uh, I won't uh, I won't go into that here. We've already gone into the uh, the autism hour about uh, finance uh, quite enough here. This is one of those episodes that I really wish we were still on YouTube for, because then you get those people who just like stumble on it looking for the Gordon Lightfoot song. And <laughs> right, our, our, like, our Rambo episode had uh, half. Yeah, a, well, it was just like half a million views or propaganda like that, doing on right. <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> Steel fanatics. Yeah, we just oh, put the word taconite in it. <laughs> taconite. 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 We're a humble ore podcast. We are we are just apolitical ore enthusiasts. I I did want to say one thing um, as I was looking up information on the lakes because you know the 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 Great Lake boats, as they're also called, they're not necessarily ships, which some would consider something more seaworthy as opposed to lake worthy in this case. Uh, just a quick note about the ships themselves or the boats. Uh, they, they do have this very unusual design, as we were kind of talking about briefly. Uh, they're very narrow, and they're eff effectively designed for the locks that they have to go through, the Sioux locks in particular. But also, they, they are within a foot of the St. Lawrence Seaway, which was actually a fairly impressive uh, engineering achievement. Uh, that was only opened up in the, I think, the 50s. Uh, and that, that opened up the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes uh, via... Lake Ontario, then Erie, then Huron, then Michigan, then Superior. So you have to kind of go down all those, all those uh, series of waterways uh, to get out there. Uh, but um, the lakes themselves, they they do freeze. And I was uh, I was intrigued by this because it it was saying that the the winter months, uh, basically January to March, is when these ships are uh, in sort of dry dock doing maintenance work, uh, and then they go back to their daily grind of moving uh, giant quantities of iron iron ore to the steel mills uh, but um, the, the reason they're they're laid up is because they can't get through those those little little locks those bottlenecks that they have to cross through which are 
which are artificial. Uh, they had to make those in order to bridge the different lakes for, uh, for ship travel because the natural formations were, as you would expect, they're not going to be these convenient little uh, ways for ships to traverse a very, actually somewhat brief uh, drop in elevation. And so what happens in the natural world is what uh, you end up seeing is basically waterfalls or rapids. And in the case of Lake Superior to Lake Michigan, you have these rapids where no man-made ship can reasonably traverse without breaking its hull open. And so they had to cut open these channels and then in order to stop the lake from actually falling out and spilling out under the, the lower section, they have to create these these little dams that then open and shut as the ship is going up or down. And so they just kind of fill up like bathtubs as they're going up and then uh, they drain out like bathtubs when they're going down. It's pretty simple, but you have to make these things in order to get the, the height difference covered in the short distance that the rapids normally cover. So anyway, uh, this is a bottleneck and the winter months form uh, ice and typically on lakes you'll have ice forming around the the shoreline because I I assume because the the water is more stable there and so the ice crystals have more more time to sort of bond together as opposed to being out in the middle where they're bobbing around and they kind of get broken up and you might have a an iceberg but those are usually breaking away from from glaciers and things like that uh, actually are ice sheets so they typically they they freeze from the the outside in and what struck me though was that um the the lakes don't freeze over completely i don't think that's ever been seen uh, but uh and this was very interesting to me the the ice coverage of lake superior this year of all years was actually the highest it's ever been uh and so this is the kind of a question about climate change you know data points you know pointing the other direction maybe about cooling as opposed to warming uh but 95% of the lake was actually frozen and normally it's it's i think substantially lower but that was a record uh in in history, recorded history, at least. So that, that was fascinating to me. So, is Hank, is it true that there's some kind of ancient beast that lives with beneath the waters of Lake Superior? I have not heard defined rumors of such things. It would be surprising, honestly, if there was not such a beast. Uh, I think you sort of take the existence of hostile sea life as a kind of given uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if there's a, a defined name for such a thing, um, as there would be for, you know, for instance, Nessie. Um, but, uh, it, it strikes me as all too plausible. Hmm. I mean, the region was settled mostly by Scandinavians. It was built up in the span of a very short amount of time from a place where very few people lived to, to uh, becoming the... Taconite uh, center of the United States. So it and is the possible. Germans. Well, the, 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 the Germans, the Germans but, but also don't forget the, the French fur traders and the, the natives. Well, the French were, were the ones before. who first explored the, uh, the lake in the 17th century. Searching for beaver. Yeah. <laughs> beaver has are. driven men across many continents to many distant places. It's funny, though, I was, I was looking at their heads and thirsted for beefer. Something was funny today, though. About but I'm just, the, the I'm just speculating that, okay, that it's possible that something from the ancient ancient Norse world was brought over with the Scandinavians. And that, so 500 feet is deep, but with modern technology, it's not that deep. There's a lot of uh, boats on Lake Superior. So 
I don't know. They're uh, they're pretty good at hiding if they're in that particular body of water. Is there anything you would like to add to this discussion, Adam? I was just I was just mentioning, so it doesn't sound discordant. What I was saying before, um, I was reading an article about the uh, in, in Forbes about the French conglomerate. At this point, it's a luxury brand, uh, LVMH. It's the largest uh, yes. luxury brand in the world. Hundred billion dollars, apparently, market capitalization. It's led by a guy named uh, Bernard Arnault. And if you think about the French and the French economy and the French history, uh, Louis XVI or Louis XIV, whatever, the guy who built Versailles, I can't remember, uh, but the opulence of that culture and just the sort of luxury that they uh, imbue in their day-to-day and uh, the sort of pride and arrogance that comes with that, it's, it's quite ironic or perhaps fitting that they would be engaged in nation or empire building on the back of the humble beaver. And the fact that they may be lost, the, uh, the fight for the North American continent to the British, who are a little bit more, let's say, uh, dull, but maybe more pragmatic, I think is also an interesting note of history. Uh, because the French economy today is pretty much dominated by, I guess, your sort of national national utilities of the energy companies. Their cars kind of don't really go anywhere outside the country. They do have a piece of Airbus, which makes the, uh, the rival to Boeing's jumbo jets. But other than that, you know, name a, name a French company that is this sort of a world beater outside of the luxury sector. It seems to be very connected to what their, their culture Citroen. is interested in. Citroen, yeah, it's a it's an automaker. I mean, yeah, but they're not. Bic. They're not. Oh, sorry. Are they French? I thought they were French Canadian. <laughs> Bic. I didn't know yeah. they were French. Yeah. Oh, you might be right. That just makes it worse. Yeah. Anyway, just a, a concocted theory I just had, but uh, interesting note of history. That's why kind of one of the reasons we do this is sort of understand how things are and why they are. I don't know they're they're French. They're French. All right. Um, So back to the the ship that is no more. Um, It's a rough business. When your job is getting in a tiny ship, a relatively tiny ship, and just moving tons of stuff from place to place, that has never in human history been a cushy job. Uh, It is just a fundamentally difficult thing to be responsible in that environment for the lives of the other people around you and for uh, the cargo that uh, if you're operating at any scale is uh, honestly in the uh, the kind of grim accounting of the business far more valuable than the lives of uh, everybody on board. So it's, uh, it's a rough business. And um, I think, you know, kind of the conclusion of this episode that uh, we can kind of appreciate um, the things that are necessary on a day-to-day basis uh, to make the lives that we live possible.